Let's take our Bibles and turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 9. It's on page 1005 in the church Bible. Hebrews chapter 9. Before we begin reading it, the background uh, is summarized really at the end of chapter 8, where the author is speaking of a new covenant, and he says that the new covenant makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes." And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, in C.S. Lewis's uh, well-known Chronicles of Narnia, you will know that he describes how several quite ordinary English children, while playing hide-and-seek, enter a quite ordinary English wardrobe and suddenly find themselves in a strange, mysterious land. Uh, Some such phenomenon occurs when we start to think as we're doing this morning about this very earthly uh, structure, this very humble structure of skins and panels and fabric that are described in this passage as the tent. Just as the children press through those familiar garments, I remember trying to reenact this with my, in my grandmother's house and uh, going into her wardrobe. You had to climb up into it. It was a, an old wardrobe. It went very deep. And uh, there was her great fur coat. But to my anguish, behind the fur coat was a fur stole made out of a fox with the head intact, it seemed. <laughs> it's rather terrifying. I didn't do that again. Uh, quite small at the time. But anyway, the same kind of adventure 
lies before us as we look at this tent that's described here, beyond the factual, measurable, straightforward, as we press deeper into the significance of this tent or tabernacle, we find ourselves in a different realm altogether. We find ourselves surrounded by the awesomeness of God's presence, the throne of God in the heavenly temple, surrounded by myriads of worshiping angels watching the ritual of redemption as we will then do through completely transformed eyes. The writer has been preparing us really for this moment. He's been setting the scene in describing the old covenant, that is the Old Testament under Moses especially, the way in which things were done among the Jews before Christ came as the shadow of a reality much more substantial. The reality is what God is going to do in Christ for you and I, and it casts its shadow backwards in the history of the world, backwards to the events and the circumstances and the laws and so on of Israel in the past. We want to focus on the substance, but here the author then reminds us of the shadow and shows us that even the shadow was preparing us to grasp and understand that substantial fulfillment in the future. He's separating, if you like, these two regimes, the regime under Moses and the regime under Jesus. He's already said to us that Jesus is the the pioneer of of a new covenant, a better covenant, that Jesus has not been a normal high priest in that He has not simply gone behind the curtain in the temple into the innermost sanctuary. He has gone into heaven itself. Unlike other priests and high priests in Israel, uh, our Lord Jesus has inaugurated a new and better covenant that is marked by His eternal life, an an indestructible life. And so the, the old order now begins to go into the shadows as increasingly in the book of Hebrews we are focusing on the ultimate reality that is Christ. But before we lose sight of the old, the author brings us back and reminds us of certain features of the old era. In fact, he makes this clear, beginning in verse 1, even the first covenant, he says, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Regulations of worship and an earthly place of holiness. There was genuine worship back then. It was real worship. The people who went there in faith really worshiped God, and it was an earthly place of holiness. It had some impact on the lives of those who went to worship there. It had an impact in making them as holy as it was possible to be. But here, from verse 2, he begins to describe the worship of the Old Testament. It was focused, he says, on this tabernacle, this tent given to them by design from God, the specifications for its uh, being erected by Israel, by Moses and and the people. It was intended to serve some specific purposes. Let me give you a list of them. First of all, that tabernacle was meant to be a visible pledge of the presence of God among His people. 
It was given to the children of Israel when they were making their way through the, pro- through the wilderness towards the, the promised land. They wandered for 40 years. Every night when they camped, they would pitch their camp around the tabernacle. It was at the center of the camp. Wherever you, were, wherever you pitched your tent, when you came out and you looked towards the center of the camp, marked by that great pillar of fire by night and, and smoke by day that led them through the desert, wherever you looked at that great fire in the middle of the night, you would see the tabernacle there. Everything pointed to that to that tabernacle. And it was meant to remind the people that His presence was always with His own people. He owned them. You will be My people, God had said to them, and I will be your God, blessing them. The priests would pronounce God's blessing on these people distinct from everyone else, and above all, protecting them from error and from evil and bringing them to God. This visual structure was a sign of God's presence and a guarantee of God's favor. And at the heart of the structure was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you know about the Ark of the Covenant if you've seen Indiana Jones. Uh, Obviously, if you've seen Indiana Jones, there's nothing new that I can tell you about the Ark of the Covenant today. Now, I want you to forget everything you know about Indiana Jones' Ark of the Covenant because none of that has any relevance. I need to mention it to put it out of your mind so that you can focus on the real thing. In the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant was sometimes called the Ark of God's strength. It was the pledge of God's presence. Where the Ark was present, God was present. Now, the downside of that was that some people in Israel thought that the ark itself was magic or that the ark itself meant the presence of God. No, it was to represent the presence of God. And so, when the Philistines, or more properly the Philistines, captured the ark of the covenant and took it away, people realized that that God had left the building. So, it was a pledge of the presence of God in the midst of His people. Secondly, it was a pledge and a means of which, by which God resided and dwelled with His people. It was His house. He gave them an earthly address where they could go to find Him. God fills the universe. He gives them the tabernacle as a way of finding Him in the midst of the universe. He is spirit. God is spirit. He doesn't You cannot locate God anywhere in the universe or outside of the universe. Unlike you and I, wherever we go in the universe, we will have a location. God does not have a location. But He came to Israel, and He gave them a location in which they would know this was His earthly address. Go there, and you will find Me. God said it was His residence where they could come to know Him and worship and serve Him and meet with Him in a vital way. Thirdly, it was a fixed seat of worship. It was designed to preserve the truth and purity of the worship of Israel. God did not leave it down to people's uh, uh, memories or oral tradition, which could have deteriorated or been neglected. The presence of that worship place was not only signaling the importance of worship in the life of Israel, but it was preserving the manner of worship, the way God should be worshipped 
to generations yet unborn. And then fourthly, the tabernacle was the privilege and the glory of the church of Israel in that it was a continual representation of the coming incarnation of the Son of God. God was pleased to dwell on earth and have a location in that tent. But that was only ever temporary. When the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, takes on our humanity, when the Word becomes flesh, we find a location in which we can meet God. As the angel said to Joseph, his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And in the flesh of Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Godhead was to be found in bodily form. The fullness of the Godhead was to be found in bodily form. And so through Jesus Christ, the law of God is kept, the worship of God is perfect, and the sacrifices that are made, the sacrifice that He made for us is absolutely sufficient. And then fifthly, this tabernacle was earthly. There it was on the earth, uh, visible to men and women, just as in His flesh Jesus was visible to men and women, tangible to men and women. It was an earthly tabernacle. But this tabernacle was impermanent, fragile, fading, and would eventually disappear, whereas the Lord Jesus lives in the power of an endless life. So, he introduces the, the tent to us, and then as he goes on, he now begins to describe the elements to the tent. I want you to imagine that you are in the camp of Israel during the time of the wilderness wanderings. You've woken up in the morning, you've spent the night in your own little tent or booth, and uh, you're emerging into the into the new day, your eye will inevitably lead towards, by this time if it's daylight, this great pillar of smoke or cloud that hangs over the tabernacle. It's a Sabbath day, so you make your way to the front portion. And there before you, you see two tents cobbled together. There's one great big long oblong, and there's a veil in front of the first section uh, through it, you can see what's going on inside so that it's, it's visible to you. In front of that veil, there is an altar on which animals have been killed. Here you are, you're outside, you're looking on, and you see the priests functioning in that first part, the first section of the tabernacle called the holy place. And in that first section, there are a number of things that, that are to be seen uh, in that first section, there is the great lampstand, the great lampstand with the, the seven lamps that represented the perfect witness of God in the world, the perfect witness of Israel, Israel that was meant to be a light to the Gentiles, Israel that was meant to be a light of the knowledge of the glory of God to the peoples. The lampstand stood there visible to you as you looked on at the tabernacle. And as you looked on at the tabernacle, you would see also there was a table there, a golden table. And on the table, there were 12 loaves of bread representing each of the 12 tribes, baked that very morning. It's a Sabbath morning. They were baked every Sabbath 
before, uh, before it became daylight of the Sabbath, before it became the day of the Sabbath, rather, they were baked and they were served and put there for uh, this image that God is the provider, that God has come to nourish His people, God has come to have table fellowship with His people, sit down with His people, eat with His people, provide the food for the party, as it were, with His people. God has come to meet with His people. And so you had these elements in the outer court. Then there is beyond the outer court, and you can see only at this point a great heavy curtain through this uh, uh, translucent veil at the beginning at the beginning of the first section. Through that, you can see the heavy, ornately decorated curtain that blocked off the second section, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And in front of it, right in front of it, you would see a small little altar, and on that altar, incense burning. You would see it wafting its way up, filling the space so that there's this kind of cloud of, of incense before the curtain entering into the most holy place. That incense, of course, you would have been taught, is meant to teach you about the fact that God listens to you when you pray. When you pray, your prayers ascend like the smoke of the incense, ascending upwards. Your prayers ascend to heaven. They're heard in heaven. And you would have smelt the incense. It would have been reverberating round the camp. You would smell it, pungent smell, beautiful smell, to teach you that your prayers, your intercessions were not only heard by God, but appreciated by God, welcomed by God sweet-smelling, as it were, in God's nostrils, although God doesn't have nostrils, but you know, you know what we mean, that your prayers ascended upwards and were heard and appreciated by God. You find this in the book of Revelation, which represents the incense as the prayers of the martyrs as it ascends and fills heaven, as it were, with its pungent aroma as the prayers of the martyrs are heard in heaven, and there is prompt action to intervene on the earth. Well, beyond that second curtain, there was only one item of furniture. You'd never seen it. You would never see it. In your lifetime, you would never see it. Behind that curtain, there was the ark, a wooden box laid inside and outside by gold, and then on top of the box, a lid, solid gold, uh, sometimes called the mercy seat, sometimes called the covering of the ark, a kind of straightforward one, the covering of the ark. And on top of that solid gold lid was formed two cherubim, whose wings, on either side, whose wings pointed inwards towards each other. There was a space between their wings, but they're pointing, forming themselves in this way, as it were. These cherubim on the lid of the ark of the covenant. There's no God represented there, just space. The God of Israel, according to 1 Samuel 4, sits above the cherubim, 
There's no space to capture God. But this is his footstool or his throne, earthly throne. He is invisible, but he is present. The cherubim acknowledge his presence. It was a sign and a seal of his rule and his sovereignty. And if you would never get to do this, but if you were able to do this and open the lid of that ark, you would find certain elements inside. You would find a little vessel, and in the vessel there would be manna. Oh, you would understand if you were there with them during the 40 years what manna was like, because you would be eating it every day, gathering in the morning, making your manna bread and, or whatever, and, and consuming it. And you had to do it that day because it would go off. And next morning, you'd have to do the same thing again. But miraculously, this manna inside the ark never deteriorated, never decayed, never died. It was, it was a miracle that it was sustained there in the ark of the covenant. There was Aaron's rod, the rod that budded, and the rod that Moses used to hit the rock when the people of God disobeyed him. He hit the rock, and out of the rock, water poured forth to quench the thirst of the people. And then there was the tables, the tables of the covenant. These are the two tables on which God Himself wrote the law, the Ten Commandments. These were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. All of these are symbols of the power of God, the power of God that fed the people, the power of God that produced the water from the rock, the power of God expressed in His law, the rules and regulations of His law. And God gave these to Israel, not only as a, as a sign of His presence, but as preparation for understanding the Messiah when He came, understanding the Son of God when the Son of God would become flesh, when He would, in the language of the apostle, tent amongst us, tabernacle amongst us. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. God chose this way and these very items to represent His glorious presence in and with the Lord Jesus and His people. So, think again about the altar. Think again about what is in that Ark of the Covenant. There are the ten words the law of God. This was the basis, the, the life and soul of the work of the tabernacle. Those ten words are the eternal and unalterable rule of our relationship with God as rational creatures, made as we are capable of moral obedience and of receiving eternal rewards. The ark was meant to preserve and keep the tables of the covenant safe. In fact, the covenant, those tables are often called, for example, in Exodus 25, the testimony of God. This is God's testimony about Himself. So much so, God is identified with that Word contained in the Ark of the Covenant. 
So that when the Philistines come along and the Philistines capture the ark, Phinehas' wife, one of the priest's wife, wives, as she's giving birth to her child and about to die in childbirth, makes her dying confession of faith when she says, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. And later on they said, the people said, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. When the ark was taken, the Lord was taken. That was how they understood it. It represented the presence of God with His people. When it was taken, the message was, the Lord has abandoned you because of your, and judging you because of your disobedience. Now, that law is important. That law is the only law, not only the law of creation, it is the rule of that first covenant of works made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. It, continue, it contained the sum and substance of that obedience that is due to God from all rational creatures made in His image. Even though the law is broken, even though the law today cannot, is insufficient for justifying or saving the church, yet that law is still a rule of obedience for the lives of God's people. It has never been dis, disallowed or disrupted or disannulled or, or overruled. One of the big designs of God in Christ was that that law might be fulfilled and established, as Jesus says it was in Matthew chapter 5. When that law was given to the people of Israel, they were in dread and horror. By that law, they were meant to learn that there is no way that they will ever be able themselves to answer or stand before God. That law strips us of all our self-confidence. That law tears away all our facade of righteousness and holiness and goodness. That law kills us. because we're sinners. God had always taught His people that that law would in itself not justify them, and that if they came to Him on the basis of the law, the law would slay them. So, what does He provide? God Himself had always taught the, taught the people that their confidence should not be placed in their obedience, but rather on His mercy and grace. So, the law is in there, and on top of the law there is a covering. God provides in the ark a solid covering over the law. Why? Because if anyone, even the high priest representing the people, went into the presence of God with the law uncovered, that law condemns, that law destroys, that law ch challenges, that law confronts us with our, with our failure and our sin, as it should. That's its job. But that solid lid is called the covering of the ark, the mercy seat, and the propitiatory, that is, the means by which we propitiate, that is, turn away the wrath of God 
for a broken law. We turn it away by means of what happens on that mercy seat. And it was unto that mercy seat every year that the blood of the covenant, the blood of atonement for sin, was brought into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Seven times the high priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to denote the perfection of the reconciliation that was being made. They were taught that the covering of the law by the mercy seat pointed to that mercy and pardon that would grant them, notwithstanding the sentence and curse of the law, a relationship with God. Those cherubim, you've heard about those cherubim before. Those are the very beings, the angelic beings, who barred the way into paradise when Adam sinned. They barred the way. And it's between the cherubim that the blood is sprinkled. It makes a way through back into paradise, back into the presence of God. It deals with the law of God. The ark contains the bread of heaven, the manna that came down morning by morning. There they were in a desert. There they were living in the very environment that reminded them that the world we live in is a, is a destroyed world, a polluted world that has insufficient ability very often to feed for physical life men and women and boys and girls. And there in that desert, God demonstrates to Israel that He is the one who gives food for everlasting life. He gives them bread from heaven morning by morning there in the wilderness. And when the Lord Jesus comes, He comes to be the bread of heaven to give life to the world. And then there's the rod. The rod which was used at a time when the whole church of Israel was ready to perish. A rock was smitten by that rock, by that rod, that brought water to the people. Now, I want you to think about this. This tabernacle, this tent, is meant to be a kind of forerunner of Jesus. It's meant to teach us what Jesus has come to do. When He was born, born of a woman, He was made under the law. The one who had given the law was made under the law. He came to act in your place and my place. He came, he came to keep that law. That law that we have broken, He came to keep. That law that was smashed by our, our disobedience, He kept it inviolate. In Him the law was fulfilled, answered, and accomplished. By His obedience and His blood, God graciously pardons and justifies sinners and establishes His law in their lives. What is the mark of a believer? It is that not only has he believed in Christ, but Christ has now begun to work His law out in his or her life, in obedience. Our Lord Christ was the true mercy seat. God put Him forth. Remember I said the mercy seat was called the propitiatory, the propitiatory? He was set forth, says Paul, to be the propitiatory, to be the mercy seat. 
to be the very one in whom and by whom we would be reconciled to God. He comes between us and a broken law. His blood comes between us and that broken law that's there in the Ark of the Covenant. His blood, which amazingly can be called in the Bible the blood of God because this is the God-man was offered in sacrifice for us. That cloud of incense that accompanied the sacrifice is a reminder that this offering that has been given by Christ is an offering of sweet smell to God. It is effective to God. It rises up to God. God hears the sacrifice of Jesus. He smells it, as it were. It, it, it makes Him willing to listen to us and to receive us. And when we offer our prayers now in Jesus' name, on the basis of what Jesus has done, our prayers are heard in heaven. It was He who took the curse of the law. It was He who is the bread of heaven and who is the bread of life and who gives us nourishing, nourishment for eternal life. It is He, says the Apostle Paul, who is the spiritual rock, who when He was smitten by the law, by the rod of Moses, by the law of Moses, by the curse of Moses, when He was smitten by the curse, out of His life, out of His death, out of His achievement flow rivers of living water that flood over our souls and wash away our sin, that, that refresh what nothing, nothing else can reach, that restores us, that restores our souls. It takes the whole of the tabernacle, not just one or two bits, but the whole of the tabernacle to construct an image of who the Messiah will be and what the Messiah will accomplish. He it is who is the one who was sacrificed on the altar. He it is who is the high priest that goes through the curtain. He it is whose blood is shed and sprinkled on the, on the propitiatory altar of sacrifice. He it is who nourishes His people with the bread of heaven for eternal life. He it is who gives you the river of the water of life that will rise up within you for eternity. He it is who is an all-sufficient Savior for you. The Holy of Holies was only entered into once a year by the high priest. The author goes on to say, all Israel got to watch this. Only the priests got to function within the tabernacle. So where are you and I this morning? We're no longer like Israel watching from the outside. Remember I said there are two courts. There's the holy place and the holy of holies. In the holy place, where the lamps shine bright, where the bread is, where the incense goes up, is where all the priests operated. That was their area. Do you know where you are this morning? He has made us kings and priests to God. The church of God today is not looking on. It's part of the inside. Men and women, boys and girls, you are priests to God in the service of God. 
Your prayers get to God. Your praises are heard in heaven. Your lives of service are accepted because you are priests and kings in that heavenly tabernacle, because you are in Christ. Where is the believer's ultimate location today? I know that your location physically is sitting on a pew in 10th, but your location spiritually is where? It is in Christ Jesus, in Him, in Him. You are in the tabernacle, in the tent. You belong to Him. That's where your life is hidden in Christ with God, beyond the reach of harm. That's your position today if you're a believer, in Christ. And today we should be, we should be electrified by the thought of this, that our, that our insignificant little lives, these moments that we spend on this side of the sun, are by the grace of God monumental because of our connection to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't know our Savior, I urge you today, come to Him. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and welcome to Him and receive the everlasting joy and life that He gives. In His name, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please uh, so uh, illumine our minds to understand, quicken our hearts to feel and sense and love, move our wills to respond and to embrace and to hold fast, and move our beings to live gratefully this week loving our neighbor, serving our neighbor, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that men and women would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.